0: Good morning. Good morning. How are you all? Appreciate you being here. I'm Evan Smith. I'm CEO and Editor-in-Chief of the Texas Tribune. Let me be the first to welcome you to day two of our festival. I hope some of you were with us last night to see Governor Perry. Uh, I can't wait for PolitiFact to weigh in on the existence of <laughs> Satan. That seems like a pants on fire moment if ever I've heard one. Um, I think you know the drill today. We have a long day of debates and discussions and one-on-one conversations. I hope you will enjoy as many of those as you can, Uh, travel between venues and among venues, and to see the great programming we have in store for you today. If you have phones and you are not going to tweet or Instagram this event, please turn them completely off. If you do choose to tweet or Instagram, we ask that you use the hashtag TribuneFest so that we can track those. Uh, I want to just acknowledge that uh, uh, Texas Natural Gas Now, the University of Texas at Austin and South by Southwest have done a wonderful thing for this community in sponsoring this festival and I'd like to give them a hand as our presenting sponsors. We're gonna visit for about 40 minutes when we get started. There are microphones in either aisle and if you have questions, we'll have time for about 15 minutes or so of questions. We'll ask that you line up at the microphones at the appropriate time. Let us get to it. It is now my privilege to introduce this morning's guests who are with us together because of a single day this summer. July 31st, 2012 began with the announcement that San Antonio Mayor Julian Castro would be the keynote speaker at the Democratic National Convention, following in the long ago footsteps of Ann Richards and Barbara Jordan, but more crucially, Barack Obama, whose 2004 speech transformed him from a promising but obscure politician into a possible president of the United States. Almost immediately, before Mayor Castro had even uttered the words "menudo cookoff," <laughs> the speculation about his own White House trajectory began. July 31st ended with the outcome of the race to succeed Kay Bailey Hutchison in the United States Senate, at least on the Republican primary side. From the moment he forced Lieutenant Governor David Dewhurst into a runoff two months before, it seemed likely, if not certain that former Texas Solicitor General Ted Cruz would emerge victorious, and he did. Almost immediately, speculation began about his own presidential prospects. (laughs) July 31st, it can fairly be said, was a portal from which the future of Texas and possibly the nation was visible. Mayor Castro and Mr. Cruz are two young, smart, ambitious, personable lawyers who can give a speech, throw a punch, as well as take a punch, and present a sunny view of the world with all of its opportunities and all of its challenges. Not incidentally, they are also Hispanic in a state that is at the epicenter of the demographic change gripping the nation. Both of their bios are well known, so I'll simply touch on the high points. Mayor Castro just turned 38. He had a birthday last weekend, was born and raised in San Antonio. He's a graduate of Stanford University and Harvard Law School. He served two terms on the San Antonio City Council before unsuccessfully running for mayor for the first time. He tried again four years later, won that office, and has since been re-elected. He is a national co-chair of the Obama, Obama-Biden re-election campaign. Mr. Cruz is 41, turns 42 in December, was born in Calgary to parents in the oil business who moved back to the States in time for him to graduate high school in Houston. He is a graduate himself of Princeton University and Harvard Law, he clerked for Chief Justice William Rehnquist at the Supreme Court, advised the Bush-Cheney campaign in 2000, and worked at the Federal Trade Commission and the Department of Justice before serving as the nation's youngest Solicitor General. We're fortunate to have the two headline makers of the moment with us today. Please join me in welcoming Mayor, Cruz and Mr. Ca- uh, Mayor Castro and Mr. Cruz. Pardon me. Maybe you'd like to be Mayor Cruz, actually. Uh, Gentlemen, thank you so much for being here. Uh, Mayor, Mr. Cruz, you both had uh, quite a summer. Uh, Mayor Castro, let me ask you first to reflect on this summer. You were out in the national spotlight for a few weeks. What did you learn about yourself, and what did you learn about the state of politics in this country? Um, Well,
1: first of all, uh, congratulations on a great event. Let's give Evan a big round of applause. This is a great (laughs) Texas Tribune festival. It's getting bigger and better every year. Thank you. Uh, Thanks for the question, and it's great to be here Uh, with with, uh, Mr. Cruz. What did I learn about myself? Hmm. Um, Well, uh, I learned that uh, I didn't panic uh, when I realized that I had all the networks and about 19,000 people watching all at one time, uh, because it was like throwing a claustrophobic into the closet and then taking away the key. (laughs) Uh, uh, But, you know, I think what we've seen in this 2012 cycle is some, some of what we saw in in 2010, um, that people are both aspirational, they're hopeful, they're also frustrated. Um, you know, people are still committed to the fundamental ideals yep. that make the United States special, that make it a land of opportunity, that make it, uh, you know, I believe, the greatest country in the world. At the same time, you know, they're nervous. Uh, and. And, and that's one of the things that's been very clear this whole campaign season. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, it, it has been an exciting summer. I also learned that uh, my daughter knows how to flip her hair. She does. <laughs> <laughs> Most famous child in America, at least for a, a
0: little while. Yeah. And you know, uh, uh, the nation learned that you have a twin brother. That's right. I thought I thought the best moment was John Stewart saying when, uh, uh, of, of you, Uh, And then they showed a picture of your brother. They said, the Democrats love Julian Castro so much they have an extra one in Casey (laughs) (laughs) Breaks. That was actually a high point of the coverage. Um, uh, Mr. Cruz, you obviously had quite a whirlwind summer. It was really a whirlwind year. And you had your own moment in the sun at the Republican convention. What did you learn about yourself? And what did you see and learn about the state of politics in this country?
2: Well, at the convention, I'll tell you, I was just glad that I didn't fall off the stage. (laughs) It was when I came out, the plan had been that there was going to be a two-minute video between the prior speaker and me, and as happens at these conventions, they were running a bit late. Uh, and so they said, they pulled, called an audible at the end, and they said, all right, we're going to cancel the video. So as soon as the prior speaker stops, you head right on out. Right. So instead of just a clean stage, you had the podium and teleprompter going down, and there was literally a 15-foot pit about a <laughs> foot behind me. So, so the clearest thought I had at the convention was I really hope I don't do a backflip. Right. Don't this- die. Right,
0: yeah. <laughs> Could have gone badly. Uh, did, what, were you surprised at the convention about anything you heard or, or, or saw? P- people you talked to about their views of the country? You, you've been pretty clear about your own views of things uh, yourself, but what, what, what did you hear?
2: I thought the convention was fantastic. I thought there was an energy on the ground. Yeah. And, and in terms of what I've learned and experienced the last year and a half, yeah. I, mean, I mean, it truly has been... A dizzying journey Mm -hmm. Uh, and and the biggest thing I think in terms of our primary was was it was really a testament to the grassroots Uh, in in any other cycle what happened in the Republican primary for Senate couldn't have happened Uh, in in any ordinary year this should have been a very easy laydown we were outspent three to one I mean as you know when we started I was at 2% right Uh, in fact
0: had the primary been back in March as opposed to May mr. Cruz you might not be sitting here Uh, Thank God for small miracles. Right. Yeah. Uh, Mr. Cruz, let's get right into it. You uh, published an an opinion piece in the Washington Times uh, this week that said, not for the first time have you said this, but you said it very directly, America is at a crisis point. Can you explain what you mean by that, please?
2: I think we're at a fiscal and economic cliff. I think we have pursued government spending programs that have created a debt that is out of control. you know, at the convention, I, after talking, I went home to our hotel room, and, and about 1.30 in the morning was looking on my iPhone at Twitter. And, and the comedian, Paula Poundstone, had, had sent a, a tweet that evening. I, I don't know her, but she was apparently watching the coverage, and, and she said, Ted Cruz just said, when his daughter was born, the national debt was $10 trillion. Now it's $16 trillion. What the heck did she do?
0: <laughs> Blame it on your daughter, well, so you think that the debt, first and foremost, is the issue that's putting the nation in crisis?
2: I think the debt tied together with government spending, which is yep. causing the debt, and tied together with government power. I think we've seen a vast expansion in the power of the federal government, right. and I think it is crippling small businesses and destroying job creation.
0: Mayor Castro, as I said, you were a national co-chair of the Obama-Biden campaign. You want to respond on behalf of the campaign or on your own behalf to the charge that somehow
1: we're a nation in crisis? Well, I would say that I would put the challenge that we have as a nation in a different context uh, and say that to the extent that, that uh, we're a nation that is in quote unquote crisis, although I wouldn't describe it as that, uh, because I believe that fundamentally that we can overcome this uh, and that we can do it in a fairly rational, rational, reasonable way, I'd say the challenge is that we've now had uh, more than a generation of folks who are not willing to ask Americans to sacrifice and to be realistic uh, about how we take on our biggest challenges. So, uh, for instance, uh, everyone remembers the Republican debate where they asked folks whether you would take the bargain of, of uh, $1 worth of tax increases for $10 worth of uh, basically tax cuts And everybody raised their hand saying they wouldn't accept that. Uh, We've become a country where, and I'd say it's not just one side, both sides, but I think principally more one side now than ever, uh, is not willing to be realistic about how we can tackle these challenges. Um, So if there's a crisis that I see in the United States for the long term, it's not the temporal issue of how we're going to deal with money because I'm very confident that we're going to be able to deal with that. Uh, it's how are we going to bring back our, our, our sense of, of what we can accomplish together as Americans uh, when um, we're realistic about those challenges. That's the, that's the thing that when I think about mm-hmm. the word crisis for the country, yep. that's the thing that worries me more.
0: Mr. Cruz, do you believe we have a problem with not asking people to sacrifice? Mayor Castro is not the first person to suggest that. You know, we were, for 10 years or more we've heard that the government is not asking all of us to do enough to help get the country back on its feet.
2: Well, it, it, it's interesting. The word sacrifice, um, I, I have to say when, when I hear any politicians talk about sacrifice, that usually means grab your wallets. Uh, it usually means increasing taxes. And, and I will give President Obama credit. Uh, He is the first presidential candidate since Walter Mondale to run for president explicitly on a platform of I will raise your taxes.
0: Well, he's not saying he'll raise everybody's taxes, Mr. Cruz. He's saying he'll raise the taxes on the wealthy. Well, although actually
2: what he told the US Supreme Court is that he already has raised everybody's taxes because his Justice Department told the Supreme Court that Obamacare was a tax on every American. And that was the position of the United States under Obama. And that was the basis on which the Supreme Court upheld Obamacare is that it was a tax increase on every to, to
0: Mayor Castro's point, though, what Mayor Castro is, I'm going to say, implying, because he didn't come out and say it directly, is that the people who in, in this country who have more might be asked to sacrifice, that's obviously what the President has been on the campaign trail saying. You do not agree with that. I do
2: not agree with that. And let, and let me say two things. Number one, if you look historically, government spending in modern times has historically been roughly 20% of GDP. Federal tax revenue has been roughly 18% of GDP. I don't think the problem is we're taxed too little. I think the problem is we are spending too much. In the last three years, federal government spending has gone from 20% of GDP to 25% of GDP. That is a fundamental structural shift, and it has produced record-setting deficits, and it's putting us on a path to where Greece and Italy and much of Europe are. Number two, I think particularly when the economy is teetering on the edge of recession, the worst thing you can do is jack up taxes on small businesses, on entrepreneurs, on job creators. I think that is makes it all the more likely to push us into a recession. And for the 23 million people who are struggling for work, the worst thing to do is hurt the small businesses that create two thirds of all well, jobs. And I would Mayor. just
1: say, I mean, you know, uh, it's clear that the president has uh, reduced taxes. You know, he's reduced taxes for small businesses 18 times. You know, he's cut taxes for 95% of families out there. The issue is, do we ask everybody to sacrifice? And as you know, when you look at the marginal rates in the United States, uh, when Ronald Reagan took office, the marginal rates were about 71, 72%, right? So it's very interesting to me that the greatness that people speak of in terms of the United States, when we talk about the 1940s, the 1950s, the 1960s, the 1970s, yeah, the marginal rates that folks paid were much greater. Now, nobody's saying that we're gonna go back to that. At the same time, during the Clinton years, we had marginal rates that were a little bit higher than they are now, and we had some of the, the best economic times that the country has ever seen. So, that's what I'm talking about. It, you know, we have to, my concern for the country is that all of this heat has been generated around this issue instead of light and analysis. And and a sober look at the role that every American can play, should play, in strengthening our country. That's the concern that I have in the long run. I want to
0: pick up Mr. Cruz's suggestion that the economy is in trouble and try to bring it directly home to San Antonio, Mr. Mr. Mayor. You know, Texas has endured, we hear from Governor Perry and others, Texas has endured this recession better than most other states. But in San Antonio specifically, It's been a a tough couple years. Uh, There was a Census Bureau report that came out this week that led to a story in the San Antonio Express News from which I have these numbers. According to the Census Bureau, between 2009 and 2011, unemployment in San Antonio went up by more than a full point, median household income dropped by $2,000, and the percentage of citizens on food stamps rose more than four percentage points. You know how tough the economy is. You're leading a city that has uh, been bearing some of that brunt. Sure. Can you talk about that? Do you dispute the idea that somehow the economy right now is in a world of hurt? Whoever's responsibility, you think that well, is? Well,
1: I would say, I think every American would say that the economy is not where we want it to be. But if you look nationally, there's also no question that we've now had 30 months of private sector job growth. You know, 4.6 million new jobs that have been created during that time. Yep. At the same time, if we were to take literally, you know, if we were to go right now to the archives of, of the university, and and pull out the front page headlines from four years ago and look at what was happening at this point four years ago, where we're losing hundreds of thousands of jobs. In the month when President Obama took office, we lost almost 800,000 jobs that month. People remember the severe anxiety and the talk of another depression during that time. So whether we're talking about the state of Texas or San Antonio or any place, are we where we want to be? No. But are we better off than we were uh, when we were talking about going into another depression and the banks collapsing and so on and so forth? Oh, absolutely. There's no question in my mind.
0: Mr. Cruz, this question, the famous Ronald Reagan construction, are you better off than you were four years ago, has become part of this campaign, naturally. Mm -hmm. Sure. Uh, Mayor Castro makes a case that at least seems not to be in dispute factually. There has been 30 months of consecutive months of job growth and when the president came into office things were significantly worse than they are now. Mayor Castro's point is, are they as good as they should be, no, but are they better than they were then, yes. Would, would you like to take issue with that? Well,
2: right now, tragically, workforce participation is at the lowest rate it's been in 30 years. Uh, you know, you mentioned John Stewart. I think often you can get a barometer on where the country is uh, by the late night comics. And, and, and there was an interesting joke Jay Leno told the other day when the unemployment... I thought you said comics. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm sorry. I, I, I'm not even going to get in the midst of that. But, Evan, but, you know, Letterman is getting older, and, and, and they, they will have a vacant chair at some point. So what did Jay Leno say? So Leno was observing when the unemployment numbers came out yeah. that they went from 83 to 8.1%. And the reason was that 368,000 people dropped out of the workforce entirely, stopped looking for work, which is the only reason the numbers went down, because nearly 400,000 people gave up hope they could find work, and Leno observed, so Obama now has his strategy for re-election, which is encouraging
0: even more people to stop looking Looking for work. But Mr. Cruz, the question was not, is the unemployment rate today 8.1 or 8.3, it's is the unemployment rate today and is job creation today better than it was when the president took office? And the answer is absolutely not. When you've got the lowest
2: rate of workforce participation in 30 years, that's unambiguous. Let me tell you, I think the most important economic number for assessing where we are is 1.5. In the three and a half years of President Obama's tenure, GDP growth has been 1.5%. Historically, for the last 70 years, GDP growth has been 3.3%. So we have had nearly four years of growth less than half the historical average. By contrast, in 1984, under Ronald Reagan, GDP growth was 7.2%. Now, what does that mean? I mean, these are abstract numbers. What does it mean? When the economy is growing, when small businesses are prospering, they're creating new jobs, people are able to find work, it, it creates opportunity for everyone. What we have, unfortunately, is small business after small business is facing crushing uh, uncertainty. I'll, I'll tell you, the single biggest question you hear from, from business leaders is they don't know between Obamacare and Dodd-Frank, between the offshore drilling moratorium in Texas. All of these policies are killing jobs. Right. And, and what, what entrepreneurs express to me all over the state is this sense of great uncertainty, what are the federal regulators gonna do? And the president keeps promising to raise everyone's taxes, which is, which is causing small businesses to, to keep capital on the sidelines and not deploy it because they've got so much uncertainty. Well, again, I'm not sure the
0: president's promising to, promise, to raise everyone's taxes, but my question is, do you know what the GDP growth was in the last year of the Bush administration? I don't. I, I don't either, but I will look that up after this. Panel. <laughs> well, but, but, but let me say, I hope, I hope you had an answer. But more to the point, more to <laughs> yeah. the point of it, I mean, yeah. let's
1: compare compare job growth under President Obama during these 30 months, and, and under Bush. I mean, the 4.6 million new private sector jobs that have been created under this president is already more than were created uh, under George Bush. I mean, you have a president here who basically inherited one of the worst economies that this country has ever seen. And of course, what are you going to do with a falling object, right? that object is gonna fall, then you're gonna have to pick it up, and the rise back up is gonna be a little bit slower. What you've seen now is that in these 30 months, 4.6 million new jobs. He's already created more jobs than George W. Bush. I mean, this is a president that understands how to get the economy going. It's not where we wanna be, but this election really should be about, okay, between these two candidates, who actually has a plan for the future? Because elections are always about the future. and, you know, given his record, uh, I have more confidence that President Obama can get that done than that Governor Romney can.
0: Mr. May, I want to get into some specific issues, uh, beginning with education. You know, right now you are working to pass an eighth of a cent sales tax increase in San Antonio to pay for pre-k. Uh, there are people who say it's not really the business of the city of San Antonio to be raising people's taxes, even if the voters of San Antonio decide themselves they want to do this, to pay for pre-k. Can you defend... Uh, uh, sitting next to somebody who does not like taxes, famously, the decision to go out to market with a tax increase even for something that you so strongly uh, believe in. Uh, many former mayors of San Antonio are with you, but there are also elected officials of San Antonio who are, who are not with you, so this is a matter of some
1: debate. Yeah, I mean, this is where I'm coming from. Basically, I, I fundamentally believe that brain power is the currency of success in the 21st century global economy. That, that those communities that create it Will be the communities that thrive in our market economy and those communities that do not are going to be the ones that fall behind so san antonio uh, i believe needs to make a huge investment in education now that investment is not limited to more money it also means getting parents involved it also means expecting more from everybody along the the whole education ecosystem from administrators to policymakers to teachers expecting more out of everyone. Uh, so what I have on the table in San Antonio is basically uh, a 1/8 cent sales tax increase that would generate $31 million a year that would cost the median household in the city $7.81 per year. Now mind, mind you, every day in Texas it costs $359.81 To keep a juvenile incarcerated. Uh, So, uh, what we have on the table is the opportunity to educate more than 22,400 four year olds with high quality pre K, fill a gap that exists right now in terms of who's getting high quality full day pre K, uh, and we're asking the voters to consider the merits. About seven bucks a year. You see, I don't believe that taxes are inherently evil. I believe that. Just like that will be be tweeted, (laughs) by the way. I don't give them a second. (laughs) Yeah. Hashtag
0: TribuneFest. Go ahead. All right.
1: I don't let me say that again. You know, I don't believe that taxes are inherently evil. I don't like them. Nobody likes them. But I've told the voters of San Antonio, there is no way to sugarcoat this. I am asking you for this tax increase. And more than that, I believe in you. I believe that that if we put it in front of you that you can make a decision as to whether or not you want to make this investment. So are you willing to pay $7.81 if we meet you halfway by ensuring accountability, uh, ensuring that we require parents to be involved in their child's education because they, they're you know, probably the most important shepherd of what happens in a child's life. Uh, we require uh, performance audits. And we set this with a definitive time frame of eight years. And in eight years, you get to vote on this again. You can either keep it or leave it based on how it's performed. And we set actual goals to make it transparent. Um, So what we're going to have to decide in Texas, especially on the issue of education, because brain power is so important to economic success in the future, is are we willing to make the investment? And if we do, then I also believe that we have a right to expect more from everybody in the education ecosystem, from parents to policymakers to administrators, everybody down the line. Mr. Cruz, Republicans, I know, many Republicans like the idea of
0: local control. Sounds like what Mayor Castro is doing is saying to the local community, you control this. If you want money for pre-K, you can vote to support or vote to reject, if you prefer to, an increase in taxes. you have an issue with that?
2: Uh, Evan, I agree with you. I, I commend Mayor Castro for taking a leadership on, on, on issue, an issue that he is passionate about, and for taking it to the voters of San Antonio, and, and I think that's where the important issues of education should be decided, or is at the state level, and at the local level. You would
0: vote no, however, for I a tax might, increase. Well,
2: actually, if if I were a citizen of San Antonio, I'd I'd look at, I'd listen to the merits of the argument. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I mean, there is certainly a role for taxes. I think there there are essential services government provides, and I think that is a choice for the citizens of San Antonio to make. Do, do the on the merits, does it make sense for them? And the great thing about it is if San Antonio, if the the voters of San Antonio decide they wanna do this and it works, then you can look at the results and other communities can make the decisions. One of the reasons I don't like federal decisions that are forced from Washington all across the country is different communities have different needs. And and what might be a good policy in San Antonio might be a terrible policy in Laredo or Detroit or New York City.
0: The mayor says he doesn't believe taxes are inherently evil, but with qualifications. Do you believe taxes are inherently evil, Mr. Cruz? Oh, evil is a strong word. It is. <laughs> and that's the word I'm asking you to use. Do you, do you think taxes are inherently evil, or don't you?
2: I think taxes are morally neutral. I think what morally neutral does with them
0: yeah. can be good or bad. Okay. Let me move on to health care, Mr. Cruz. <laughs> I tried. Um, Mr. Cruz, uh, this week the Census Bureau uh, that I alluded to earlier, their report also talked about the state of healthcare in this country. Uh, Census Bureau said that Texas now has 5.8 million uninsured citizens. That's down as a percentage of, over, of our overall population, a little bit. Now it's 23% of our overall population is uninsured. We are still the state with more uninsured citizens on a percentage basis than any in the country. Along with that, a report by Steve Murdoch and Michael Klein of the Hobby Center at Rice came out and said that if only we would embrace federal health care reform, we could insure three million Texans by 2014. In a state with the most citizens uninsured in the country, Mr. Cruz, why would we not try something that at least some people believe would insure more than three million of our fellow citizens?
2: Well, I think, you know, right now, the nation is struggling with Obamacare and what's going to happen if Obamacare gets fully implemented. And I, and I think that's one of the central issues at stake in November. It's one of the central issues at stake in the presidential race, right. and it's one of the central issues at stake in the Congressional and Senate race. Well, in the Senate
0: race, the fact is you're a vote to repeal. Uh,
2: so not- I am an enthusiastic vote to repeal. Okay. Uh, and if you look at what, uh, what is happening with Obamacare already, you are seeing uh, small businesses, you're seeing employers drop health insurance. Talk about dropping health insurance as Obamacare gets implemented. And and Obamacare, if fully implemented, I believe, will lead inexorably towards shifting more and more of the citizenry to government-provided insurance, to moving us towards a single-payer system. It's interesting. A lot of the liberal activist group got very angry with with President Obama that he didn't go all the way to a single-payer socialized health care immediately. And there were reassurances made. Fear not. We'll get there. I think that's what Obamacare is headed towards, if it it is fully implemented. I think if you look at every nation on earth that has implemented socialized health care, that has put government-run health care, you have seen poor quality. You've seen rationing. You've seen waiting lines. I don't think that's what Americans want, and I also think Obamacare was implemented with, with, with a government arrogance that was extraordinary. There has been no major social legislation passed in modern times other than Obamacare that was on a pure party-line vote, rammed down the throat both of the opposition and also of the American people.
0: Mr. Mr. so you're going to double down on the idea that the Affordable Care Act, which I do believe now has been found constitutional, uh, is socialized medicine. You're, you're doubling down on that.
2: I, I think it is designed to lead us inexorably towards socialized medicine.
0: Uh, Mr.
1: Mayor, I, I'm, I'm just guessing you have a different point of view on this. <laughs> yeah. Well, I do. Yeah. Um, I mean, let, let's just take a look at, at what the facts are. Um, yeah, it's been fascinating to hear the discussion about Obamacare over these last couple of years. And, and every time you hear it, it's always anecdote after anecdote, sort of fear after fear about what's going to happen, about what people are talking, you know, snippets of conversations here and there. You started with a very good fact. Evan, which is that the percentage of folks who actually have health care, not just in Texas, but over in the United States over, these last couple of, over this last year has, has gone up for the first time in a very long time. And the reason that it's gone up is because now you know, folks who are up to 26 years old can stay on their parents' plan. You know, pre-existing conditions are not some paperwork excuse for an insurance company to deny you Uh, benefits that you've earned, and paid for. Uh, So the only things that we have out of Obamacare uh, are a positive so far. Everything else that we've talked about, about, well, are small business owners, are they worried about it, Or, 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 or is there a chilling effect that's happening because of it? There is no empirical evidence for that. It's all about some future that's out there that's painted very darkly, although I will say that we do have a model to look at, and it's Massachusetts. It's Romneycare. And what we saw in Romneycare, what I wouldn't Romneycare vote for that either. well, but what we saw in Massachusetts with Romneycare is that actually Massachusetts folks like it, that it's worked well, uh, and it would be a great thing if, if the governor would actually embrace what he accomplished, because I, you know, I would agree with him that that was a, a good way for Massachusetts to go, and you know what, in 2015, 2016, 2017, by the time, if, if, uh, Uh, Mr. Cruz is is elected this year. He's up for re-election in 2018. I bet that folks are gonna be singing a different tune about Obamacare. Uh,
0: Mr. Cruz, to the specific points that the mayor made about uh, pre-existing conditions and allowing uh, uh, young people to remain for a certain period of time on their parents' health insurance, uh, even Governor Romney, who you support for president in this election, uh, has said he would keep some of those things in any health care plan that he would put forward uh, if you were elected President. Are you okay with pre-existing conditions? Are you okay with uh, keeping people on their parents' insurance through 26? Are there aspects of it that you would permit even if you want to repeal the entire thing? No. Uh, so you're, you're against pe- pe- people uh, being able to get insurance despite pre-existing conditions. Let me get you on the record here. No,
2: and, then, and, and let me explain. Look, political candidates and politicians love to come with goodies and say, we're gonna give you something and isn't this great and they never focused on the, focus on the cost. Uh, you know, my view of, of how to approach healthcare reform, and this is, this is a complicated issue, it doesn't, doesn't admit to sort of simple Band-Aid solutions, is fundamentally different from the approach of President Obama's. I think healthcare reform should expand markets, expand competition, and empower consumers and patients, and disempower government bureaucrats from second guessing the decisions that are made between a patient and a doctor. Now, what does that mean specifically? The three reforms I think would be most important would be, number one, allowing people to purchase health insurance across state lines. Why is that? Because that would create a true 50-state national market for low-cost, catastrophic health care. Part of the problem, every time politicians say, every health plan must include the following bells and whistles, and they give away all this stuff, it has the inevitable effect of driving up the cost of health insurance for everybody. And one of the biggest reasons so many people in Texas and nationally don't have health insurance is because it's so expensive. If we had a true 50-state national marketplace with low-cost catastrophic care, that would expand access dramatically. So buying,
0: buying across state lines is number one. What are two and three? Number two is
2: expanding the use of health savings accounts so people can save in a tax-deferred way to take care of their health needs and I think that has significant impacts both in terms of empowering consumers but also in terms of constraining costs in the system.
0: Right. So that's two.
2: Two. Come a- back and then three. Three is working to delink health insurance from employment. It is an historical accident that most of us get our insurance from our job. It actually arose during wage and price controls in World War II as a way for employers to attract employees and the problem is We don't live in the 1940s and the 1950s where people go and work for one company for 50 years anymore. The average American stays four years at a single employer. And if you or I lose our jobs, we don't lose our life insurance, our home insurance, our car insurance. So portability
0: is a concern for you.
2: Portability, and and if insurance is personal and you own it and it travels with you regardless of your job, that goes a long way to solving the problem of pre-existing conditions because you're not – Losing your health care between one job and I the other. I want house. the
0: mayor to respond, but, I, but Mayor, I, I, Mr. Cruz, I asked you two specific questions, and I want you to answer those questions. Do you support uh, allowing people to buy insurance despite preexisting conditions? Do you support the principle of allowing young people to stay on their parents' health insurance up until age 26 or some fixed... All right, let, let's answer those one at a time. Yeah. Uh, let, let's start with
2: age 26. Look, if you mandate every insurance policy must allow young people to, to stay on their parents' plan up to 26, that will increase the cost of insurance coverage for everyone. Which you don't want to see happen. Which I, because So it I will, take that as a no. I, you, you, but it is a no <laughs> as a government mandate, but if if you allow people to buy insurance across state lines, in the marketplace some insurance policies will be available that say, if you want to buy this policy and cover your kids right. up to 26, you can do so and you can pay higher premiums. That's what correct. I don't want to do is jack up everyone's premiums Because these things aren't free. So mandate,
0: mandate no, but possibility of that happening organically, yes. Absolutely. What about pre-existing?
2: Pre-existing conditions, if someone has a policy, if they're personal and portable, then insurance companies shouldn't dump you when you get sick.
0: But if you have a mandate that you must be covered regardless of a pre-existing condition, that's not insurance. So if I don't have insurance but I go to get insurance and the insurance company wants to deny me because I have a pre-existing condition, your point of view is they should be able to. Let, let, yes, and let me give you a, a reason why. Let's suppose we were talking about home insurance,
2: and we were saying you should not care about a pre-existing condition. What is the incentive then? No one should buy fire insurance on their home. Wait till your home burns down and then go get then fire insurance. Then go buy insurance. insurance. And it's the reason why Obamacare includes the individual mandate. Because you cannot have a requirement that everyone must be covered regardless of pre existing condition unless you have an right. individual mandate that forces everyone against their will to purchase insurance. And, and I, I, I disagree with the individual mandate. Most Texans disagree with the individual mandate. And those two are intertwined. You can't have the goodies without the
1: cost.
0: Right. Mayor, quickly respond to that well, one. Well, no, I mean, I here. just
1: have a different view of it. You know, I, I have a different perspective on it. Um, you know, in fact, the underlying perspective seems to be uh, that everybody's going to go their own way, and when everybody goes their own way, that you know things will sort of work out. I think, especially with something like healthcare, that we need to be more intentional than that. Uh, but just to take an example, one of the things that you mentioned is is this idea of folks getting low-cost catastrophic insurance, right? So, you know, just so everybody gets that for a second, catastrophic coverage. Right? You have some. You know, huge health event in your life that's going to be very expensive and you're able to get insurance so that it won't be quite as expensive. But if you look at the reality in, for instance, in the Hispanic community, in our community, uh, of how many folks have diabetes, how many folks live with hypertension, with, with all of the ailments that are associated with diabetes, and year after year after year it's getting worse. And we have so many folks who literally are using the emergency room as their primary care physician, so they have the catastrophe. They end up in the emergency room because they go into diabetic shock or they have to get an amputation, uh, you know, like my grandmother eventually did. I don't want for us to wait as a state or a nation to work with folks until they have that catastrophe, health-wise, just because, you know, an insurance company says that they had a pre-existing condition. I want them to be able to get health care, and more than that, we can make it workable, economically workable, as the president has, so that they can get that health care. So you know, just on that point, you know, we don't want to wait until somebody has a health catastrophe to say, well, now, now instead of you know, $25,000, it's going to be $5,000. No, we want you know, to, to help ensure right, that folks can get good health care coverage. Throughout their lives, so that they don't end up in that emergency room, in that health catastrophe, so that they can actually be preventative, not just experience the catastrophe. That's what we ought to aim for as a nation, not the other. Uh, we have about five minutes before I
0: open it up to the audience for questions. I want to come to immigration. Uh, I want to ask each of—I appreciate it, by the way—that you said Mr. Cruz is Hispanic, unlike the chairman of the state Democratic Party. You don't question whether that's legitimate. <laughs> yeah. um, we but we have two gentlemen up here who are both Hispanic, uh, and I want to ask both of you, both as individuals and as members of the Hispanic community in Texas, what you believe the immigration policy of this country should be. It is a subject that has been kind of kicked down the road for the last couple of years. We're now only finally beginning to talk about it in earnest, despite. Uh, assurances that we would be having a real conversation about this, and I, I wonder if each of you, Mr. Cruz first, uh, can you talk about where you think this country ought to go on this subject?
2: Well, immigration is an issue that, that I think, sadly, neither party is serious about solving. Uh, I, I think you see both political parties demagoguing on the issue of immigration, using it to scare people, uh, and I think the underlying policy is, is quite simple. I, I think most Texans, most Americans, agree that number one, we need to get serious about securing our border. That we need to stop talking about it and actually solve the national security and law enforcement challenge of a border that is not secure. And number two, that we need to remain a nation that not just welcomes, but that celebrates legal immigrants. Americans by choice is what Ronald Reagan described, legal immigrants. I think one of our great strengths as a nation is that all of us, our ancestors, came from all over the world seeking freedom and opportunity. And I think we need to remain a nation that celebrates legal immigrants and at the same time yeah. secures our border and gets serious about stopping the problem And of yet that immigrants.
0: same President Reagan in 1986 uh, uh, instituted a program that was effectively, if not literally, amnesty, which has been much criticized by members of your party, Mr. Cruz, for essentially opening the, the floodgates to people who uh, were not here legally and... You know that, that's, uh, Governor Perry last night said that he believed President Reagan would undo that if he were still here.
2: I, I don't think amnesty is the right approach. I no. don't think most Texans or most Americans support amnesty. And, and I think amnesty is unfair to the millions of legal immigrants who wait years and sometimes decades in line to come here legally to reward those who broke the law I think is fundamentally unfair, and it, it's not consistent with rule of law. M-
0: Mayor Castro, we, we know that the President recently put into effect what we call prosecutorial discretion. This is a way to address the question of children, of people who are here, uh, uh, undocumented persons who are in this country. Obviously, there have been some attempts of late to address some of the aspects of this, but overall we do not have comprehensive immigration reform in this country. Where should we go?
1: Where should well, we go on this issue? you know, my hope is that after this election uh, that the environment in D.C. will, will uh, be more supportive of comprehensive immigration reform. Uh, of course, we have different views on the subject. Uh, I, I agree with the President's decision to exercise prosecutor, prosecutorial discretion. Uh, I also agree with what he did for the DREAMers, uh, and I hope that we're able to pass the DREAM Act in, in fairly short order. You're opposed um, to the DREAM Act, Mr. Cruz. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. But I would just say you know, that when you look at what's actually going on out there, I mean, the president is getting knocked on both sides, right? Some are knocking him because they say that he's deported more folks. You know, this administration, they say, has deported more folks than I don't know how many other.
0: Well, then the Bush administration. I believe sure. his record on de- deportations is greater.
1: Uh, we know that since 2004, the number of Border Patrol agents has doubled in our country. And that President Obama in his fiscal year 2012 budget called for an increase to over 21,000 border patrol agents, and that since 2007, the revenue going toward border security has actually increased 55 percent, and we also see, for instance that in terms of Mexicans coming to the United States that that's at basically a net zero right now. so to suggest that somehow our borders are not secure if, if if what that means is that are they as secure as we would want them to be, well, we can always make them more secure, right? I mean we could theoretically have zero people ever coming across the border, but the borders I would argue are about as are more secure than they ever have been
0: before. I guess we could ask are, are our borders present? more secure than they were four years ago right <laughs> <laughs> Might, might, might actually couch it in those yeah. in those I, terms and,
1: and 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 so just. Uh, and, then, and then there's this issue of, of the, the tone of the debate and I think the fear mongering in the debate. For instance, uh, this, this issue of folks who are OTMs other than Mexicans, right, that I know that you and, uh, and uh, Lieutenant Governor Dewhurst talked about in the debate that y'all had. Uh, and, and one of the things that you mentioned was that there are many folks from Middle Eastern countries who are among the OTMs that come over to the United States. Do you know how many, how many, uh, OT, how many Middle Eastern country OTMs there, there were? I, I don't have that data, now. Do you know that it's, it's less than .002% of the folks that came across? In fact, you know, it, it's so low that they could probably fit in this room. Now, should we be? We might suggest that one person is one too many, right? which I agree with. At the same time, and that's why I said at the very beginning of our conversation that there's a larger point here, that if we're in some sort of crisis as a nation, the crisis is not any temporal fiscal issue that we're facing or one policy issue. It's how are we gonna address these, these issues in a reasonable way? And, and on both sides, I do agree with you, uh, Mr. Cruz, that on both sides, people have used this issue and others in terms of like piñata politics, right? I mean, they beat it about, you know, they, they, they um, turn these issues into cartoons, uh, but on this issue of what it means for our country to have immigrants, to get immigrants that have been the building blocks of our nation, uh, I really believe that we need to take a sober look at it I hope we can get comprehensive immigration reform that is passed. Uh, I, I believe that the, the dreamers who are morally blameless ought to be allowed to stay here and to pursue their dreams of going to college or serving in the military or or working or whatever. Um, I don't think that in the long run that the United States is going to be well served by being a nation that you know that sends a signal to the world that even though we're we're, we're saying that you know. We like legal immigrants. We really, you know, we're comfortable with where we're at. Uh, the needs of our workforce don't support that. Uh, I think the future of our, of our country is stronger if we go in another direction. Uh, so, my hope is that we can get comprehensive immigration reform passed.
0: Okay. Evan, let, yes. let and, me... Yes, and you, as Mr. Cruz gets ready to say one more word about this, if there are questions, we're gonna have you line up at the microphones. Go ahead and start doing that now so we can get right to them when Mr. Cruz is finished. Sir.
2: Let, let me make a point about yeah. what
0: the president did in in terms of acting
2: unilaterally, uh, which I think should trouble Mayor Castro, should trouble Democrats, uh, because a year ago President Obama said he had no constitutional authority to effectively grant amnesty to some 800,000 people who were here illegally. And then as we got closer to an election year, as we got closer to November, Magically, he asserted that constitutional authority. Now, I'll tell you-
0: Shocked to discover politics shows up in an election year, right?
2: Shocked, indeed shocked. Indeed shocked. Um, But I'll tell you my view. I am concerned by unchecked power in the hands of the executive, whether that executive is a Democrat or a Republican. I think our nation's history, the Constitution was designed to limit unchecked power. And if President Obama is right, that he has the power to say, doesn't matter what our federal immigration laws are, I'm going to ignore those laws. And it's not simply prosecutorial discretion. He's having people register and saying, once you register, you are here effectively illegally. We will prevent deportation proceedings against you. That is essentially erasing a law from the book. And if a president can do that, I would be curious uh, what Mayor Castro would think of a, of a Republican president that began erasing laws from the book? Something like the Clean Air Act. I thought we just went through that a couple years back. Well, you know, you know it is interesting. <laughs> Let, let's, let's actually talk about that. Let, let's talk about a very specific instance. The biggest case of my tenure as Solicitor General was a case called Medellin versus Texas, a tragic crime in Houston. Two teenage girls were horribly murdered. The World Court, the judicial arm of the United Nations, issued an order to the country to reopen the convictions of 51 murderers. And the president, who happened to be a Republican, George W. Bush, signed an order that attempted to order the state courts to obey the World Court. And as Solicitor General, working for Greg Abbott, on behalf of the state of Texas, I went before the Supreme Court and argued the president doesn't have the authority to unilaterally ignore the law. And in fact, I use this exact same example. I said, listen, George W. Bush is a Republican. He's a Texan. I worked for him. I admire him in many respects. But I don't, I fear unchecked executive authority. Right. Regardless, the Supreme, regardless of party. Regardless of party. And the right. Supreme Court agreed and struck down his assertion of party. Now, what I don't see is any voices, even a single voice in the Democratic Party, raising the question of why is it that the president has the authority to ignore the law? And that's a dangerous precedent, and if if President Obama supports the DREAM Act or anything else, he can push legislation through, he can have it considered. You know, in in San Antonio, with with the tax increase, we're increasing preschool. You didn't dictate as mayor to do that. You said, bring it to the people, go through the democratic process. I think that's the way change should be done, not through executive assertions of
1: authority. Well, but let me just say that we've assumed already that through prosecutorial discretion, what he said is that we're going to prioritize certain cases. He didn't say, we're writing off the books all of these other immigration cases, right? So again, what, we're doing, what what you're doing is projecting into the future a result, just like with healthcare, that hasn't happened yet. That's not what he said. Prosecutorial discretion exists, as you know better than I do. I, I grant you, you're a much better lawyer than I am. Uh, as you know, prosecutorial discretion exists in every single county courthouse all the way up to the highest levels of our government. It's nothing new. He's not breaking new ground. He's not writing off these other immigration cases. He's saying that we're going to prioritize folks who have committed felonies, who are real criminals, because that's how we believe that with the resources that we have to spend, that we're going to keep our, our, our states safest. You know, We want communities to be safe, and so what we're going to do is start with the folks who are criminals.
2: Well, he did a little more than that. He said, we will not prosecute these people. It wasn't just we're going to focus a lot of attention on others. He said, well, this again, is a whole get category of people
1: who have violated federal law. And again, that, that I should we have will known immigration wouldn't take five minutes. <laughs> well, and, and, <laughs> and again, let me just say, and again, he didn't write those cases off. What he said is for these two years, while, as you say, and President Obama has made this very clear, while Congress has the opportunity, we hope, to do something about this, to step in, and change the landscape of the law, we're going to have this two-year pause. He didn't say that, that we're going to write these folks off the books, that they can go on and do whatever they want. This is a temporary status. Let me, let me go to questions, and again, I want to
0: apologize in advance. I don't know that we're going to get to everybody, but we're going to try. And of course, I
1: wish we could just listen to
0: these guys debate this stuff all day long, but we've got to go on. Gentlemen here will go back and forth as long as we can. Please make them quick questions. Yes. Baylor College of Medicine. And my question is. Thank you is for actually, wearing your, your medical <laughs> clothes. Very I helpful. This, I heard it this
2: morning. Um, my question is actually for both gentlemen, but more directed toward Mr. Cruz because he's been a much more vocal proponent of spending cuts at the federal level. And the question I have is as he advocates for those spending cuts, there's actually a country in the world right now that's instituted kind of immediate, consistent austerity, and that's Great Britain. There, um, the coalition government of David Cameron and his chancellor, George Osborne, have cut spending dramatically. And thus far, in Britain, it's failed to produce the economic recovery that it was promised to produce. In fact, I think Britain has recently um, dipped back into recession. So if it hasn't worked there, what makes Mr. Cruz think it will work here?
0: In fact, austerity has not worked so well in a lot of places, not just Great Britain, but elsewhere. Well, you're solving different problems there. I, I don't disagree that government spending
2: cuts on their own don't necessarily produce growth. The, the reason you see spending cuts is because our debt, our national debt now exceeds our gross domestic product, and you're trying to, to pull us back from the brink. In terms of growth, and I'll, I'll tell you, my, my priorities in the U.S. Senate uh, are going to be to lead the effort to dramatically shrink the size, the power, and the spending of the federal government. To get growth going, I think the two most effective levers are regulatory reform and tax reform both of which are removing impediments from the private sector from small businesses to create jobs and if we can ease the regulatory burden if we can ease the tax burden have fundamental tax reform that's how you get gdp growth up cutting spending is not primarily directed at growth cutting spending is primarily directed at at pulling a nation back from the brink of insolvency thank you Um, my name is danny Zhang. i'm a student at the university of texas um, I just want to ask both of you a question about young people in general, as um, the cost of higher education has skyrocketed in the last few decades, um, as much as 440%, but student loan debt has skyrocketed as well, and recently, or more so last year, well, the last year's college graduates, as much as half of them, were either unemployed or underemployed. What's your message for young people like myself looking into the future in terms of my job prospect and
0: how am I gonna fare in this economy? Mayor, give this young man hope. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> I, I would say first, you know, that, that, that you know, stick with what is gonna be pay dirt in the 21st century global economy, which is getting an education, getting the, the knowledge and the technical skills that it takes To succeed, my fear is that in the coming years, folks who are getting, you know, who have the ability to go to college or to technical training or university uh, may choose not to, thinking that, well, I don't want to incur student debt. Uh, First of all, reforms that have been made in the last couple of years, I think, have made it better for students. Um, Secondly, uh, you're never going to hurt yourself by educating yourself, you're always going to benefit yourself. Um, And so those would be generally my two pieces of advice. But, okay.
2: sorry, if I can interject, yeah, well, if, we, if, there's no way, if there's no way I can get a job out there, there's like a half and half chance, do I wanna put myself through $40,000
1: in debt doing that? You know, I mean, there's no question that, that you know, the job market today is not uh, the job market of America you know, when it was full throttle, but remember that things are getting better And so what you want is you want to have those skills so that you can be competitive in that economic marketplace as this recovery continues. Sir. Hi. Chris Burge from Dallas. Uh, My question is for Mr. Cruz. You mentioned immigration waiting lists for legal immigration, but these are based on family preferences or highly skilled workers. Almost all undocumented workers don't have these uh, abilities. Would you change the family preference system and would you eliminate the Cuban Adjustment Act, which gave you... The opportunity to come to this country with an unfair advantage that Mexicans, Salvadorans, Guatemalans, Dominicans don't have?
2: Uh, actually, I, I didn't immigrate from Cuba, so, so I, the, that was not, not where I came from. Now, but is, I will isn't te- that how your
1: father uh, it,
2: came? It, it is how my father came, and I will tell you there, there is a rule that is true throughout this country, which is that we recognize the principle of asylum, we recognize the principle of political oppression. I'll tell you. My father was imprisoned and tortured and beaten almost to death. My aunt was imprisoned and tortured and and nearly lost her life in jail. And and We have, for decades if not centuries, recognized that political oppression is qualitatively different when you have a dictator and a murderer in power that is torturing and oppressing its people. That is qualitatively different from the great many people that are coming because of economic challenges, because of real challenges, but we have long recognized there's a qualitative difference between the two. And I would be thrilled to repeal the Cuban Adjustment Act as soon as we don't have an oppressive dictator in Cuba that is torturing and oppressing his people. My name is Judy Noodleman. I'm from Austin. Um, My question is directed to Mr. Cruz. Governing involves compromise. Uh, can you share with us uh, what your attitude towards compromising with the Democratic legislators will be if elected, and also if you have or if you will be signing the Norquist Pledge, which will limit your ability to compromise? On the
0: compromise issue, this came up in the Indiana Senate race where Mr. Murdoch, the Republican nominee, said quite explicitly, my version of compromise is when the Democrats come over to my side. right." <laughs> So so where do you come down on the question of working with Democrats? Are you with Mr. Murdoch on that?
2: Well, it's a very important question, and and I'll tell you my view on compromise is exactly the same as Ronald Reagan's. President Reagan said, what do you do if they offer you half a loaf?" Answer, you take it, and then you come back for more. I am perfectly happy to compromise and work with anybody, Republicans, Democrats, Independents, Libertarians. I've joked before, I'll work with Martians. If, and the if is critical, they are willing to shrink the size and power and spending of the federal government because I think we're facing a fiscal and economic cliff, and we need to solve that problem. And, I, and I, I have no interest in going to Washington and just giving a bunch of cathartic speeches. We need to fix the problem. That's what Texans are looking for, is serious leaders that will pull us back so that we can ensure that the opportunity and prosperity every one of us has been blessed to enjoy That that is there for our kids and grandkids, and so on compromise, I'm very happy to to work on an agreement, let's say say tax reform. I strongly support fundamental tax reform, simplifying the tax code, moving to a low uniform rate that is paid by everyone. I recognize I may not get everything that I want. If we're moving in a positive direction, if we're shrinking government, if we're advancing liberty, I will readily take less than 100% of what I want. Where I think Republicans have gone wrong. Is so many times they've compromised going backwards. They've compromised in a way that makes the problem worse, that grows government, that increases the debt. And I don't support compromise just for the sake of
0: cutting no. the deal. We need to fix the problem uh, quickly. The Norquist pledge, just yes or no. Have yes. you signed the Norquist? pledge? Yes, you have, Mayor. I'm no, going to give you the last word, please. Thirty but, seconds. You and know, no, that we're gonna that have to, that's
1: right. Again. That there's always, you know, Cuomo said that you know that you campaign in poetry and you govern in prose. The problem is that that it doesn't sound much like poetry in politics these days, you know, it sounds like something worse. And then folks want to govern in the same way. You know, they don't want to compromise. You cannot do that. In San Antonio, we actually have shrunk the size of government. You know, that the, the number of employees on our city payroll has shrunk by between 4 and 5%. You know, we actually eliminated positions. Everybody talks about Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan didn't shrink the size of government. The government was much bigger when Reagan left office than when he started. There's this, this idea that is created out there that doesn't match the reality, but when you get down to local communities where we actually do compromise, where we may make the tough policy decisions, then yeah, sometimes you can do it.
0: Okay. Well, I'm afraid. I'm sorry, Ms. Richards, and the other questions. We are out of time. We're committed to sticking to the schedule. A hand the Mayor Castro and Mr. Cruz. Thank you all for coming, and we will see you elsewhere during the day. Thank you. I really enjoyed that. That was That was fun. Thank you. That was really great. And I appreciate your time. Thank you both so much. You will have well-wishers, and I will let you get to Likewise. Good. It's a great way to kick off the day. I really yeah, want to thank definitely. You. Fantastic. And it's serious.